Thanks for listening to the Pigskin Tales podcast. This story was written and produced by Ross Bliley, edited by Nikki Bliley. To support the podcast, join me on Patreon. You can find the podcast on any platform you want, Spotify, Apple Podcasts, and Audible. If you like the story, help me out by doing a quick review. This will help others to want to listen. The soundtrack is from filmmusic.io. Once again, thanks for listening to the Pigskin Tales podcast. At the Sports History Network, we're proud to introduce you to a new sponsor for our podcasts. It's Homefield Apparel, your premium collegiate apparel brand right out of Indianapolis. They've got incredibly comfortable t-shirts, plus they're officially licensed with vintage college designs. They have over 150 plus colleges available now and always adding more. Homefield digs through the archives and history of your school to find unique logos, mascots, and moments to make thoughtful designs for your school. When you shop today, new customers can get a 15% discount off their first purchase using the promo code SPORTSHISTORY at checkout. You can learn more at homefieldapparel.com. Last time on the Pigskin Tales podcast, I talked about Joe Guyon. He was a big man from the White Earth Indian Reservation, which is a small community in central Minnesota. He played football, basketball, and baseball in high school and ended up playing football for Pop Warner at the Carlisle Indian Industrial School with Jim Thorpe. Later, he played professionally for the Canton Bulldogs, Washington Senators, Cleveland Indians, Oorang Indians, Rock Island Independents, Kansas City Cowboys, and the New York Giants. He won one NFL championship with the Giants in 1927. While competing in pro football, Guyon also played baseball and was very successful. In three consecutive seasons with the Louisville Colonels, he hit 340. After his playing days were over, he began coaching. His pro football coaching career wasn't the best statistically, but he was still inducted into the first class of the Pro Football Hall of Fame in 1963. This time on the Pigskin Tales podcast, I'll be talking about a guy who grew up in St. Paul, Minnesota. He was instrumental in helping Ernie Nevers set a never-been-touched record of 40 points in a regular season NFL game. Teammates nicknamed him Big Keys. High school classmates nicknamed him The Babe because he hit home runs like Babe Ruth. This is Pigskin Tales. The story of... Walt Big Keys Keysling. Walter Aloysius Kiesling was born May 27, 1903, in St. Paul, Minnesota, to Wenzel and Barb Kiesling. According to records from Ancestry.com, Walt's parents immigrated from Austria. In addition to Walter, Wenzel and Barb also bore another boy and named him Edward. 
From the same record on ancestry, it was noted that Wenzel's main source of income for the family was a cutter in a leather factory and later worked in a garment factory. Barb was a housewife. According to the Pittsburgh Post-Gazette, dated on October 4, 1939, Walt played as a tackle on the football team for four years at Creighton High School in St. Paul, Minnesota. Later on, he attended college at St. Thomas and played tackle there as well. In the spring of 1926, he earned a bachelor's degree in math. Although he never formally used his college degree, he decided to play pro football instead. According to the Star Tribune, dated on November 29, 1925, he earned All-State honors for the 23, 24, and 25 seasons. Article author Frank E. Murray noted that Kiesling was chosen for the third time in a row because of his consistent play throughout the season. He was, quote, a man of great size and strength, unusually fast on his feet despite his great weight, and he was a bulwark in the cadet line. He had an uncanny knack of sensing the direction of the play and placing his great bulk in its path, unquote. After graduation in the spring, Walt opened a cafe in St. Paul. Operations and profits were a little low, and by the fall of 1926, he decided to join Ernie Nevers in Duluth to play for Ole Hagsrud and the Eskimos. The Eskimos were part of a growing trend of NFL teams traveling around the country. In their first season together, Nevers and Kiesling spent a lot of time together on the road. They only played one game in Duluth, and the rest were on the road. Overall, their win-loss record was 6-5-3, which isn't a great season, but I can still envision the players having a good old time with each other on the bus. At the start of the 1927 season, owner Ole Hagsroots asked Ernie Nevers to be the head coach of the Eskimos. At the time, in order to shake things up, Nevers asked Kiesling to switch positions from tackle to guard. Kiesling ended up playing in six out of the t- season's nine games. The team's win-loss record was a frustrating and disappointing 1-8. At the end of the 1920 season, Hegsrud sold the Duluth Eskimos back to the NFL. As part of the deal in selling back the team, Hegsrud was offered an ownership stake in any future NFL team in Minneapolis. At the time, the Minneapolis Red Jackets were available for purchase but he chose to decline the offer because of low attendance and a terrible win-loss record. It wasn't until 1960 that Hagsrud got another chance at owning an NFL team in Minnesota. He was part of a group that purchased the Minnesota Vikings as an expansion team. Imagine this. The professional football team you now play for is sold because the owner is frustrated with the lack of wins. Now what do you do? Where do you go? Luckily for Walt, he went back to the St. Paul area where he reopened his cafe. Later, he'd get a call from owner John Striegel asking him to play guard for the Pottsville Maroons in Pottsville, Pennsylvania. He agreed and off he went. During the 1928 season, Kiesling played with Johnny Blood in Pottsville. According to Ralph Hickok of HickokSports.com, the team slipped to a dismal 2-8 record. 
Owner Doc Striegel loaned operations to three other players on the team. Herb Stein, Pete Henry, and Duke Osborne. Henry was named the head coach. Because the team struggled to win, Striegel sold the team to an ownership group out of Boston. As a parting gift to commemorate the 1928 season and the short-lived Pottsville Maroons, everyone on the team received a chunk of athracite, coal in the shape of a football. This may sound a little sarcastic, but gee, what a gift. After this season, Walt moved back to St. Paul and went back to work at his cafe. At least there, he could feel comfort knowing that he still had a job and that he's making good food for the good people of St. Paul and Minneapolis. As training camp for the 1929 NFL season got closer, David Jones, who purchased the Chicago Cardinals from Chris O'Brien in the offseason for $12,000, hired former Duluth Kelly's head coach Dewey Scanlon. Scanlon was able to convince former Duluth Eskimo star, fullback, and future NFL Hall of Famer Ernie Nevers into becoming the team's player coach. Because Ernie and Walt played together in Duluth, Ernie called Walt and asked him to play with him with the Chicago Cardinals. The move was definitely well worth it in the end because on Thanksgiving Day, Ernie would set an NFL record that would be challenged but never broken. When asked, Ernie is such a humble guy that he gave credit to his offensive lineman for helping him set the record for most points scored in a professional football game. Thanks for listening to the Big Skin Tales podcast. I'll be right back after this. Do your friends or coworkers always talk about football? Do you wish that you could actually join in their conversation? Don't feel left out of the conversation by sitting on the sidelines. Enroll at the Football Learning Academy. It's quick and easy. You can join a diverse community of football fanatics who are here to deepen their knowledge of the game they love. Regardless of whether you're looking to add a little or a lot to your football knowledge, the Football Learning Academy is here to help you put today's game into historical context. You can learn more at www.football-learning-academy.com Thanks for listening to the Big Skin Tales podcast. On a crisp autumn day in November of 1929, the Chicago Cardinals were playing the crosstown rival Chicago Bears. Neither team was having that great of a season. The Bears with Red Grange were 4-6-1, and, and the Cardinals with Ernie Nevers were 4-5-1. This was an epic battle for the ages, as it was for the city championship. The field conditions weren't that great either. In the first quarter, each team had a series of three and outs, and punted the ball back and forth until Nevers was able to bust through the middle of the defensive line and score his first rushing touchdown of the game on a 20-yard scamper. Minutes later, the Bears turned the ball over. Nevers and the Cardinals broke through the defense again and Nevers scored his second rushing touchdown on a five-yard bull rush. Determined not to give the ball up again, the Bears were able to gain some traction but still not able to put any points on the board. 
Heading into the second quarter, the Bears were frustrated and the Cardinals were confident. Early in the quarter, with all the momentum swinging the Cardinals' way, the Bears punted the ball back to the Cardinals. With Duke Slater and Walt Kiesling leading the way, Ernie Nevers scored his third rushing touchdown of the game, making the score 20-0. Nevers felt like he couldn't be stopped. Bears fans in the stands were yelling and screaming, Someone stop him! At halftime, the score was 20-0. The Cardinal fans were confident that this game was going to turn out just like they expected. A win on Thanksgiving Day was going to bring them joy. Meanwhile, the Bears players and coaching staff had to figure out how to adjust to what the Cardinals were doing on offense. Since the Cardinals got the ball first to start the game, they had to kick off to the Bears to begin the third quarter. As quarterback Walt Homer, right halfback Red Grange, left halfback Gardy Grange, center George Trafton, and the rest of the Bears offense trotted onto the field, they felt a little intimidated. They felt like they had to come up with some kind of a big play to get momentum back on their side. On the first play of the third quarter, as soon as Homer took the ball from Trafton, the Cardinal defense rushed after him. Gardy Grange, Red's brother, who was a rookie in 1929, went wide to the left and Homer hit him on a wheel route. Grange made a couple moves and ended up going the distance for a touchdown. 60 yards to the house! The Bears fans and players all jumped up and down with excitement. This made the score 20-6. Patty Driscoll attempted the extra point but missed, thus keeping the score at 20-6. The momentum of the game switched. The Bears felt like they were finally getting somewhere. The only thing is... Ernie Nevers took it as a challenge. He rallied his troops for their next possession, determined not to let the game get out of hand with momentum swinging in favor of the Bears. Nevers, Slater, and Kiesling marched the Cardinals down the field. Inside the red zone for their fourth time for the day, Nevers broke another run up the middle and scored for his fourth touchdown. After making the PAT, the score was now Ernie Nevers 27, Gardy Grange 6. Bears fans and players were disappointed. They thought they were getting back into the game. As the third quarter came to a close, Bears fans were getting impatient. They wait, they wanted to see their team come out and make some plays. They shouted and hollered at the players to get their heads into the game. As play began in the final quarter, the Bears next drive stalled out. They punted back to the Cardinals. Nevers was as confident as anyone could be with the way the game was flowing. He urged his teammates to keep going. Meanwhile, the Bears' defensive line was exhausted trying to catch Nevers on every play. He was so big and strong that it was near impossible to bring him down. It seemed like he was getting stronger as the game went along. On the Cardinals' next possession, Nevers ran right through the middle of the Bears' defense again and scored his fifth rushing touchdown. Due to a bad snap on the extra point try, Nevers missed it. Now the score is 34-6. The Bears had to answer to stopping Ernie Nevers. No matter if they put eight or nine guys in the box, 
They just could not stop it. Nevers added a sixth and final rushing touchdown with about five minutes to go in the game. The extra point try was good. At this point, he has now secured the record for the most points scored in a professional football game. This record will never be broken because the players that score the touchdowns now don't kick extra points. As we all know, there is an actual kicker for that. Once Nevers has made the extra point and made the score 40-6, he decided to take himself out of the game. Keesling and Slater stay in to finish it off, but Nevers goes to the bench to take a rare breather. At the end of the season, the Cardinals were 6-6-1, good for fourth place in the league that season. According to ProFootballReference.com, the list of all pros in 1929 not only included Ernie Nevers, but also Walt Kiesling, Duke Slater, and Herb Bloomer. Bloomer was on the second team as a right guard, while Kiesling, Slater, and Nevers made the first team as left guard, right tackle, and fullback, respectively. Over the next three seasons, Kiesling would play 30 games and make the all-pro list as an offensive and defensive lineman in each season. According to Collier's Eye magazine and the Green Bay Press-Gazette, he was one of the best guards in the league. The Associated Press thought that he was one of only a few second-best offensive linemen in the league in 1932. I'll be right back to finish this story right after this. This podcast is sponsored by the Sports History Network, your headquarters for sports yesteryear. Show some love for your favorite Sports History Network podcast. Now Open is a merch shop just for you. If you're looking for a unique gift for a birthday or Christmas that's just around the corner, check out the Sports History Network store. You can get coffee mugs, t-shirts, and even podcaster books. Check it out at shopsportshistorynetwork.com. Thanks for listening to the Big Skin Tales podcast. According to the Chicago Tribune dated for August 16, 1934, Bears head coach George Hallis signed Walt to a one-year contract to give Red Grange, Bronco Nagurski, and Carl Brumbaugh some help. It almost paid off at the end of the season because even though the Bears were undefeated in the regular season, they fell just short in the championship game against the New York Giants. After the disappointing loss, the Bears were 13-1 that season. Kiesling did not make the All-Pro list that season, but he did help Bronco Nagurski make the list with 7 touchdowns. At the end of the 1934 season, Kiesling was released by the Bears and immediately signed with the Green Bay Packers for the 1935 season. Earl Curly Lambeau liked the way he played so much so that he kept him for the 1936 season. In 1936, the Green Bay Packers, coached by Curly Lambeau, had a regular season record of 10-1-1. Kiesling played in just 8 games. However, his addition, among others like Don Hudson, helped the Packers earn another league championship. Finally, after all those years of playing pro football, Kiesling won the ultimate goal in 1936, an NFL championship. He felt relieved because it was so elusive with all the other teams he played for in the past. 
He just really wanted to win one before he called it quits. By 1937, Walt moved on from the Packers and joined the Pittsburgh Pirates. He was back with his old buddy from Duluth, Johnny Blood. While it was nice to be back with people he knew, the team did not perform well while he was there. For two seasons, the Pirates went 16-6 and and didn't make the playoffs. Kiesling only played in 12 out of the 28 games that the team played in those two seasons. After the 1938 season, Walt hung up his cleats for a bigger role on the team. In a career move, Walt was named assistant head coach to Johnny Blood just before the start of the 37 season. Head coach Johnny Blood asked him to become part of the coaching staff in order to get him used to being on the sideline directing other players. From 1939 to 1944, Walt was an assistant head coach, a head coach, and a co-coach of two different combined teams. In his first ever season as, as a head coach of the Pittsburgh Pirates in 1939, Keesling took over after Johnny Blood resigned early into the season. He led the team to a 1-6-1 record. In 1940, when the Pirates were renamed the Steelers, Keesling led them to a 2-7-2 record. In 1941, Keesling was replaced by Burt Bell and Aldo Buff Donnelly. Nearing the end of the season, general manager Art Rooney convinced Bell to resign as head coach because he felt the team hadn't made any improvements in their performance. So he went back to Walt and let him finish coaching the last four games. The team ended the 1941 season a disappointing 1-2-1. In 1942, Kiesling was the sole head coach of the Steelers. He led them to their first winning season in franchise history with a record of 7-4. During World War II, Kiesling and the Philadelphia Eagles... Keesling and the Philadelphia Eagles head coach Earl Greasy Neal co-coached the Steagles. The Steagles were a combination of the Philadelphia Eagles and the Pittsburgh Steelers due to a lack of players the war took. The team went 5-4-1 in 1943. The next season brought Keesling to co-coach the Card Pit team a combination of the Pittsburgh Steelers and the Chicago Cardinals. It was Kiesling and the Cardinals coach Phil Handler whom co-coached the card pit team. As fun as it might have been, it was still a very disappointing season. They ended 0-10 and were outscored 328-108. to At the end of the 1944 season, Walt wrote a letter to Steelers owner Art Rooney. He expressed his deep appreciation for being part of the organization, but he had to regretfully resign as head coach. On January 27, 1945, the Pittsburgh Press reported that Kiesling resigned as the Steelers head coach to take a coaching job as a line mentor with the Green Bay Packers. The next day, the Green Bay Press Gazette reported the same thing to the public so that they wouldn't miss out. 
At the end of the 1945 season, the Green Bay Press-Gazette reported on December 6th the Walt, that Walt and Curly Lambeau reached another agreement to extend Walt's line mem- mentorship with the Packers for another two seasons. Lambeau was so impressed with Kiesling's coaching abilities that he felt like he needed him to stay. By January of 1948, Lambeau and Kiesling reached another agreement to keep Kiesling on as line mentor, but Walt was diagnosed with pneumonia in December of 1947, after a trip to play the Los Angeles Rams. The Green Bay Press-Gazette called it a terrific cold. And so Walter wanted to continue mentoring the Packers linemen in 1949, but it was this de- the decision of Curly Lambeau who said that Walt should take a year's vacation from football to rest. Walt ignored Lambeau's request and l- went looking for a new job as a line mentor. On March 8, 1949, the Pittsburgh Press reported that Kiesling was hired back with the Steelers as an assistant coach and shared line duties with Ken Ormiston. For the next five seasons, Walt was the line coach. In August of 1954, the Pittsburgh Press reported that Kiesling was once again promoted to head coach as Joe Bach resigned after losing three straight exhibition games to start the 1954 NFL season. From 1954 through the 1957 seasons, Kiesling was in charge of the Steelers. He never had a winning season. In August of 1957, just as training camp opened, Walt felt he had to have a chat with Steelers owner Art Rooney. He must have been doing some deep thinking at the time when he said, Art, if you have a chance to get Parker, don't let me stand in your way. My health is fine for the moment, but I just don't know how long it's going to last. You know I love this job and I love this organization and I love these fans, but I just don't know how long my good health is going to last. You know that I'm forever grateful for all the opportunities you gave me. I just want to spend whatever time I have left with my family. I think you should go ahead and contact Buddy Parker. Buddy Parker was a longtime friend of Kiesling. He started his coaching career as a player coach for the Chicago Cardinals in 1943 as an aide to Jimmy Konzelman and Phil Handler. In 1949, Parker was named the next head coach of the Chicago Cardinals. The next season, Parker was brought to the Detroit Lions as their next head coach. His salary at the time was 30000 From 1951 through the 1956 season, Buddy Parker was the guy in charge of players like Bobby Lane and Jerry Reichow. He took over for Bo McMillan. He had immediate success winning three Western Division titles from 52 to 54 and two league championships in 52 and 53. In his six seasons as head coach of the Lions, he only had one losing season. His overall record was 44 wins, 23 losses. According to Pat Livingston, who reported for the Pittsburgh Press on August 28, 1957, Rooney met with Parker in Chicago. 
Parker made it quite clear to Rooney that he wouldn't talk contract with the Steelers until Keesling personally assured him that he was willing to give up the job. Parker asked Rooney to arrange for Keesling to call. The call went through from Akron, Ohio to Dearborn, Michigan, where Parker's home was, on Sunday morning at precisely the minute the Steeler team was boarding the chartered buses back to Olean, New York. Shortly afterward, Buddy Parker was interviewed on the phone and mentioned that he isn't going to jump into anything until he knows the personnel. After hearing the Steelers-Eagles game on the radio, he said that they could use a little help here and there on offense. That's when Steelers fan knew that Keesling was out and Parker was in. To help Parker get acclimated to the Steelers franchise, players and other staff members, Walt stayed on as an aide to Parker until he passed away in 1962. Pat Livingston reported on Friday, March 2nd, 1962 that Walter Keesling had passed away due to a lingering respiratory ailment, which hospitalized him several times in recent years. His Celebration of Life Mass was held at St. Peter's Church on Monday, March 4th. He was survived by his wife Irene. In August of 1966, Kiesling was posthumously honored to be among seven other former players and coaches who were inducted into the Hall of Fame. Others that were inducted were Joe Guyon, Bill Dudley, Arnie Herbert, George McAfee, Steve Owen, Hugh Ray, and Clyde Turner. Although Walt Kiesling came from the northern Midwest, his legacy in pro football is a lasting one. He not only played his heart out on the gridiron, but he coached with passion too. He was soft-spoken, but he was also very confident. He earned a lot of respect from his teammates, coaches, staff members, and even owners. Walt Kiesling's footprint in the National Football League will forever be stamped in the record books. Thanks for listening to the Pigskin Tales podcast. This story was written and produced by Ross Bliley, edited by Nikki Bliley. To support the podcast, join me on Patreon. You can find the podcast on any platform you want, Spotify, Apple Podcasts, and Audible. If you like the story, help me out by doing a quick review. This will help others to want to listen. The soundtrack is from filmmusic.io. Once again, thanks for listening to the Pigskin Tales podcast.